Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and my newest book, Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, we have brand new telehealth patient options now open and lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, we're giving away free signed books, everybody. All you have to do for a chance to win is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you can take a screenshot of the Apple Podcast review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every single month, my team and I will be going through the messages on Instagram, as well as the Apple Podcast reviews themselves and randomly picking winners from both places every single month. And then I'll reach out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign, and then we'll send it out to you. All right, good luck. Let's get to today's guest. He's a longtime friend of mine. He's a legend. Thomas DeLauer. People say, I post a picture or he posts pictures. I will get tagged on Instagram and say, are you Thomas DeLauer's brother? And he'll say, are you related to Dr. Will Cole? He's the bigger buffer version of me. No doubt about it. Thomas DeLauer is a celebrity fitness and nutrition expert and social media influencer. And honestly, so much more than that. He's a freaking wealth of information. He is best known for his hugely popular YouTube channel, which has millions and millions of followers and regularly features posts on fitness and nutrition. He has appeared in Muscle and Fitness, Muscle and Performance, and Bodybuilding.com, among so many other outlets. This man is so freaking smart, brilliant human being. You're going to learn so much from him. Let's get right to it. This is Thomas DeLauer's Art of Being Well. Thomas freaking DeLauer, man. It has been too long, and we get to catch up in front of the world on the podcast today. Thanks, man. 
Man, thank you. This is long overdue as friends and as professional uh, acquaintances, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's set the stage. Well, let me. I guess we should get this out of the way. I can't tell you how many people on social media tag me or comment when I post something and they say, are you and Thomas DeLauer brothers? I'm the less muscular, less ripped Thomas DeLauer apparently. So I, I don't know. We're not related that I know of. I least. mean, we could be. I mean, it's, you never know. I mean, we, it's kind <laughs> we of funny because we- Go on, we, go on. We, we, we share a lot of similarities as far as like how we look at life and health and who knows right. who we are. Yeah, we need to uh, share our 23andMe or Ancestry uh, data and see. (laughs) But like my friend, let's we're going to debunk so much myths today and really set this record straight on a lot of maybe controversial topics within health and wellness. Uh, Let's start with maybe that's a good segue. I guess we talked about being the the ripped version or, or building muscle. I think there's a lot of misconception out there. People don't know what to believe because Dr. Google is a sort of this conflicted physician and people don't know what to believe. So if somebody's having difficulty building muscle, if they're working out, they're trying to do the right things, but they're not really making the gains, what are some of the top mistakes or pitfalls that people are doing unknowingly? Okay. Unknowingly, uh, let's start from the most basic grandiose and kind of trickle down to the more esoteric stuff because we need to address the big elephant in the room. One that most people know is probably protein, right? Not getting the protein. Uh, Muscle growth is a pretty simple equation as far as what's called nitrogen balance. Being able to have a positive nitrogen balance means that you have enough protein ultimately in the system to facilitate muscle protein synthesis. So you're always in this delicate dance of muscle protein breakdown and muscle protein synthesis. And for a very simple colloquial way of putting it, if you just constantly remind yourself of that delicate dance, it can make life a lot easier. But people also think that, oh, well, I worked out today. I broke down muscle. So it means I need more protein. No, you don't necessarily need more protein that day per se. You need more protein over the course of the week. So I always encourage people, just look at your protein with a wide angle lens. Don't worry about it so much when you're coming down to what day you trained and how hard your workout was. Your protein requirements are going to remain high throughout the remainder of the week anyway. Uh, I'd say the next uh, the next focus is people focus so much on lifting heavy, they forget about metabolic demand of the actual muscle. And that's where I've evolved a lot in my way of thinking over the last maybe seven, eight years is I used to really think resistance training was all about trying to just lift heavy weight to get muscles. And I've since realized that the muscles are just much more of a, of an organ and we treat them like an organ. And what that means is putting them under metabolic stimulus, putting them under, I, I focus more on the time under tension of a muscle. Like how long am I actually putting the muscle under load versus my old school way of thinking that probably would have just resulted in injury, did result in injury, which was just schlepping weight around. Uh, so, I mean, I encourage people to think like that. Like think about keeping the muscle under tension and you're signaling a metabolic demand for that muscle to want muscle protein synthesis. And that, although sounds simple, it's that sort of paradigm shift in people's minds that helps them be able to resistance train for a long time. Some of the other common myths, I mean, bottom line is that things like sauna, things like other hormetic stressors can influence how our body utilizes protein. Uh, There is a recent paper that just came out that talked about literally using sauna post-workout to improve the insulin sensitivity to ultimately improve glucose and protein uptake into the cell. So if people don't have access to a sauna, 
hop in a hot bath. It's what I do when I travel and I can't use a sauna. There's studies that demonstrate that, you know, neck up to neck immersion in hot water. It doesn't have to be scalding. Just get that same effect you would get in a sauna has a huge effect on the muscle. So let's just kind of leave it there and we can drill down into it. more nuance. Of you do. I, I, I want to definitely get granular on this stuff. So going back to the first thing, I think that's a very, it's a hot tip on protein. You're saying I, we shouldn't be so concerned about how many grams of protein we're getting in a day. Just make sure you're getting it in, in the week. Can you give us some numbers maybe for the average person? Like what should they be shooting for as far as protein intake? Yeah. You know, so the, the old rule of thumb, which if we start getting into kilograms and you're probably aware of this, it's like 0.8 kilo, uh, grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, yeah. which is not much. Yeah, it's, it's really it's not too, much. Too much, too much math for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, too much math and candidly not enough protein in my opinion. Right. Uh, right. You know, because you know, if you take someone that's a, you know, an average weight, maybe 85 kilogram male, you know, 0.8, we're talking like 75 grams of protein per day. That's I don't know. That's if for someone that's resistance training, that's not really cutting it. So I usually like to make it pretty simple. I usually say, Hey, like if you're training at least a half a gram of protein per pound of body weight that you want to weigh, and that's on the low side, right? Like for someone like me, I'm training a lot. I aim for just under one gram. I'm about 180 pounds. I try to get in about 165, 170 grams of protein per day. And I don't just count meat protein. I don't just count, you know, I count all protein. I really do. I, I'm one of the few in sort of the lower carb world that I still count the protein from the plants because when they're combined and you have complete amino acid profiles, they are still absolutely valid. Uh, so I look at that big picture. So at the end of the day, I'm somewhere between 160 and 180 grams of protein weighing about 180 pounds. That I feel is a great number for a lot of people. If they were just trying to figure out if, if uh, someone is 200 pounds, maybe aim for about 180. If you're 150 pounds, maybe aim for 125. It doesn't need to be these ridiculous amounts that people talk about. However, from the research that I've seen, the upper threshold is much higher than what we're typically taught. Uh, if you look at the data, you have a lot more flexibility to go higher before potentially running into issues. But I think a lot of times there's these safe numbers that are put out because they never know people's underlying kidney conditions, things like that. So I totally understand and respect that. But I'm also coming from the school of value try to get by with the least amount of something so that you're not having to like, you know, eat a hundred pounds of chicken a week. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a drink that I've been drinking for a long time now. And if you haven't heard about it, where have you been? It's called hop water. It's spelled H O P hop water is W T R hop water. Freaking love this. Hop water is a non-alcoholic sparkling hop water crafted with adaptogens and nootropics. This is my love language, everybody. It's this crisp, refreshing drink that just has that little, the, just the right amount of fizziness, carbonation, but also has adaptogens to support your mood and energy, nootropics to support cognitive function and focus and energy as well. So good. I've been a longtime fan of this drink. We even keep it stocked at the Functional Medicine Telehealth Center here. Hop water lets me treat myself to a great tasting beverage any time of the day. Since there's no alcohol, no sugar, I don't have to worry about going back for another one. I love this stuff. I'm a fan of all their flavors, so I love that hop water has variety packs with their most popular flavors. It's a great way to try them all. 
I love the classic one. I love the mango. I love the peach. They have lime one. They have blood orange. It's so good. I made all kinds of mocktails with different flavors of hop water. You have to check these out. Hop water, that's H-O-P-W-T-R. It's so refreshing and full of hoppy flavor and mood-boosting benefits. Plus, it's purposely crafted without calories, without carbs, without sugar. It's gluten-free, it's keto-approved, and it's also Whole30 friendly too. So you can make bold moves like raising a can whenever you want. I know you'll love hop water too. You need to try it out. Right now, I have a special offer just for the Art of Being Well listeners. You get 20% off your first purchase. Plus, you can get free shipping when you order 24 cans or more. To get this offer, go now to hopwater.com slash willcole. That's H-O-P-W-T-R dot com slash willcole. Don't wait. This offer won't last long. So you have to go to hopwtr.com slash willcole. So, I mean, and just to go back to my point of, you know, too much math, you don't, people don't have to calculate this out with a calculator and pen and paper, right? There are apps that do it. Are there any apps that you like that figure out all this data for you? There's a few of the simple ones. Uh, there's good old MyFitnessPal. There's uh, one that I've used for like a decade. It's called MyNetDiary. It's like a little green app. Uh, I really like it just because it's simple. I have no fiduciary obligation to say that, no relationship with them whatsoever. It's just one that I've kind of defaulted to. The only thing I don't like about it is that it it tries to give you like a scoring system that's based on an algorithm. So it's like if you have any saturated fat, it tries to tell you that you got like a D minus. It's just so there's some things that but for basic macros and stuff like that, it's great. Uh, good old Dr. Lane Norton has his carbon, carbon uh, diet coach was a pretty decent one that kind of has AI to help uh, kind of adjust your macros as you go. He's done a good job with that one. I mean, say what you want about Lane. He developed a pretty decent app. Yeah, those are, those are the three that I kind of rotate around with. Got it. One of that we recommend for some of our patients who do the macro tracking, not everybody we have do this, but a chronometer is one that comes to mind. Have you ever tried that one? I have not, but I know a number of people that, that have. I like it because it's more nutrition based yeah. it's, and it's less like I like you're saying with the saturated fat, they're not sort of demonizing nutrients <laughs> in, the, in the world. So let's talk about fasting and building muscle. So I, you know, I'm thinking of the person out there that's thinking, man, I don't have to lose weight, right? I, I want to maybe build muscle. I want to maintain, I want to feel good. And they're kind of trepidatious about intermittent fasting because they're afraid of losing weight and losing muscle. What would you say to that person? I would say that on the surface, that trepidation is absolutely valid. That makes so much sense when you first look at it. So I would never fault someone for being inexperienced with fasting and, and looking at it and thinking they're going to lose muscle because on the surface, that's what it seems like. You're, you're starving yourself. Somewhere back in the nineties, I think we started seeing commercials that when we starve ourselves, our body just like stores body fat and, and burns up muscle. Um, I remember those old like anti-cortisol infomercials that were coming on all the time. And that got drilled into so many people's heads. And it wasn't just the infomercials. It was just out there. Starvation mode scared people. The bottom line is that if you are using the muscle, your body is preferentially not going to want to burn it unless it has to. So we're starting to see now that the muscle somewhat operates independent. And what I mean by that is people can be in a decent caloric deficit, but as long as their protein needs are met ultimately at any time of day, whether it's fasting or not fasting, they're going to preserve muscle. 
And what that's taught us is that there's almost this autonomic sort of like this autonomy that the muscle operates with, where from a survival standpoint, if you think about it, if we were out and we were starving and we haven't eaten in three days and we're out looking for something to eat, if we were actively using our muscles and using our body from a survival standpoint, it wouldn't make sense for our body to start catabolizing and breaking down that tissue, right? It's it's relevant to our survival. The body's not going to say, hey, he's using this muscle. Let's break it down. The body's going to say, hey, he's using this muscle. Let's preserve it because clearly it's necessary to his survival. Instead, let's burn this fat because he's not using that. If you were sedentary and you weren't moving around, in that case, muscle is metabolically expensive. It's It would be a waste for your body to keep muscle if you were just inactive because the body would say, why are we pumping blood to this tissue? And this guy's not even using it when he's starving. So it would waste it. So we're starting to see that in the research too, where stimulus is key. So when people are fasting, it comes back to such basics. And this is refreshing because we went through a period of time where people just wanted complicated answers, but now we're getting back to simple basics where as long as resistance training is there, and as long as you're consuming enough protein during your eating period, muscle wasting is not really a concern with fasting unless you have an underlying condition or unless the fasting is going longer than say 36 hours where you could start to have some, but even then it's negligible and it's usually offset by empowered sort of muscle protein synthesis that occurs during your eating period. Got it. So I know that you talk about very eloquently about the sort of negative impact of fasting too much. What is too much? Maybe it's just 36 hours, but like, what are people doing wrong? I guess for the, the fasting aficionados that are listening to the podcast and they think, you know, they may be going hard on it and for long periods of time, what are some signs that people need to look out for when they're for their body fasting too much? Yeah, this is something that I've experienced firsthand. So I can, I can speak from the heart with it when you're fasting. Well, first of all, I'll explain why fasting too much can be problematic. Uh, I think there's the obvious things like you go too far you do start having tissue breakdown. And we're not talking about long fasts per se. I'm talking about too frequently. Uh, like fasting feels good. It's dang easy to get addicted to the feeling of it and want to do it every day. As long as you going, go into doing it every day, understanding that, hey, this is just a lifestyle now. And I'm not necessarily trying to keep a high metabolic rate. And I'm not necessarily trying to lose more weight. I just like how I feel. I think it's perfectly fine. But when people fast every single day, you're basically just doing caloric restriction, which again, there's nothing wrong with caloric restriction. Obviously it works. It's hugely advantageous. It's, it's awesome. But what separates fasting from caloric restriction is that contrary to what people might say, there are some unique benefits to fasting independent of just caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. And you start to lose those effects if fasting just turns into caloric restriction. So once you start fasting every day, you're walking a very delicate line down to just restricting calories mm -hmm. and not really getting the benefits of fasting. So I always tell people, if you're not a smidge hungry during your fast, you've probably adapted too much, which is your body just doing what it's supposed to do. But I go through periods of time where I fast a lot. And then I'll say, wait a minute, like I've been fasting for 20 hours and I'm not even hungry. And although it's a rite of passage in some ways, cause you're like, dang, I'm so fat adapted. My body's so good at using my fuel, but I'm just not hungry. That's a great check checkbox to check off, but it also means that your metabolic rate has adjusted. So it means that the shock, the effect of the fast, the hermetic stress is not there anymore, or it's weakened. Mm -hmm. So I always advise people like, if that starts to happen, take a week off of fasting 
And you'll be amazed that that next 20 hour fast that you do, you're hungry at the end of it again. It doesn't take long to like restoke that metabolic rate a little bit. And if you take it too far and you don't give yourself a diet break or a fasting break, you certainly can slow down the metabolic rate to a point where it's quite difficult to get it back. And if your goal is to lose weight, then that can be a problem. If your goal is just liking fasting and keeping calories low, it's not really an issue. Um, some of the other things you might notice, like if your fingernails start getting brittle, if your hair starts to fall out or get really brittle, super dry skin all the time, which is something that I'm victim of no matter what, but either way, I notice it more if I'm fasting, I get super chapped lips, very dry skin. So that's things mm -hmm. to pay attention to. Uh, crashed libido, your sex drive is just in the toilet. That's a very common one. Again, of course, uh, not feeling hungry. That's a very important one to note. Sensations of being cold all the time. Mm -hmm. okay, those are all signs of like, hey, you're fasting a little too much. You need to take a break. And a break can be a few days and then reestablishing a new pattern where maybe you're fasting every three days and doing a slightly longer, more aggressive fast, like 18, 20, 22 hours every three days or every four days instead of 16 or 18 hour fasts every single day. Yeah. Really good stuff right there. And I also would add to that some signs and symptoms people to look out for are women that have their period is thrown off or they have amenorrhea. Would you include that in things to look out for if they're maybe fasting too much for their body? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, uh, females start to notice definitely irregularity of their cycles. Females tend to notice a little bit more in the way of the mood shifts, the mood changes. They also a lot of times will manifest in more water retention. So, which can be a direct result of, again, that estrogen progesterone kind of being out of whack. So definitely something to look out for. Absolutely. So now we're talking about muscle building, muscle loss, fasting. Let's settle. I know everybody asks this question, but I want to hear your take on this is what breaks a fast? And I'm thinking specifically people like looking to get their grams of protein up or, or, or taking things like essential amino acids. But beyond essential amino acid supplements, does that break a fast in your opinion? What does the data say? And then beyond that, like what other supplement or drinks that people may be having, what breaks a fast, what doesn't? Yeah, uh, essential amino acids are awesome. I don't know if they have a place during a fast. A lot of the research for taking them solo, like without a meal alongside them is pretty bleak to begin with. So you don't get a huge benefit by like, say, sipping on them during a workout, like people think. Like most of the positive research surrounding EAAs is in tandem with a meal. It can increase mTOR activation it can increase, uh, or phosphorylation. It can increase sort of the protein synthesis that happens with a meal in some studies by up to 4X, which is pretty astronomical. What that means is EAAs are a tremendous thing to have when you're breaking your fast along with the protein you're having after your fast because it can potentially increase the amount of protein that's taken up. Now. Because of the leucine specifically, leucine is very insulinogenic. Now it's normal for leucine, for protein to spike insulin. And it does this simply because it needs to be able to spike a, basically spike insulin so that it can get into a cell. Uh, without that, protein synthesis would never occur. But being that it is insulinogenic, it does trigger that mTOR response. mTOR uh, 1C is what it is, that global mTOR activation. That by very nature is some would say the literal opposite of fasting. Mm -hmm. So mTOR is exactly what you're trying to downregulate during a fast. And by consuming something that's going to have either A, it's it basically having an amino acid drink, as far as mTOR is concerned, is not much different than straight up having a scoop of protein powder. And most people would agree you wouldn't have a scoop of protein powder on a fast. So why would you have EAAs during a fast? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, that's what I always thought. From a mechanistic standpoint, especially if you're looking at a lot of the longevity benefits, uh, the autophagy benefits of intermittent fasting, you want to err on the side of keeping mTOR low during that time. I agree with you. It's like when you're breaking that fast, having a meal to optimize your essential amino acid profile, I think EAAs are a great thing to consider for sure. All right. And I know that you talk a lot about the research around a specific type of intermittent fasting, early intermittent fasting, time, early time-restricted feeding specifically. Can you talk about that? Many, many people that listen to the podcast may have not heard about that. Yeah, it's, it's really come to be popular in the last year, basically because most of the research has come out over the last year. ETRF for early time-restricted feeding is just flip-flopping your eating window. So most people uh, would skip breakfast if they were doing intermittent fasting. ETRF is essentially skipping dinner. That's really the only difference from a meal timing standpoint. What's different about it is the alignment of the circadian genes. There's much more evidence being uh, pointed to ETRF being very solid for sleep regulation, for mood disorders, and for that entire spectrum of things, especially it has to do with the brain. Now, from a body composition standpoint, they're about the same, but there does seem to be solid evidence pointing to ETRF being better for insulin resistance. And that probably has to simply do with the fact that you're not having a bunch of food prior to going to bed, which is demonstrated to be not exactly great for insulin sensitivity or resistance anyway. So in that case, it does leave you like in a prime time spot to potentially work out in the morning in a very deeply fasted state, break your fast with some breakfast, eat breakfast, maybe some you know small lunch, maybe eat another small snack and cut off your eating at like 2 p.m., 3 p.m., or depending on when you get up, you can even go all the way to 4 p.m. or whatever. And then let the evening just be days or the period where you don't eat. Now, people are thinking, I have families. How am I supposed to pull this off? Dinner is important. I totally agree. And this is not something you would do every day. Uh, I'm sure just like the case of intermittent fasting, there are people that have probably adopted an ETRF strategy every day. I would advise against it. I would typically say, hey, do this two or three times a week. Excuse me. That way you're still having dinner with the family. You're not totally like alienating yourself. Yeah, got it. And do you see a benefit for consecutive deeper fasts like this, or if, if someone made ETRF a deeper fast, or do you feel like a non-consecutive days are the most advantageous for us for, if we're looking to get the most out of it? I think long-term non-consecutive days are great, but another strategy if people like consecutive days is to try doing like two weeks of no fasting and then two weeks of consecutive day fasting and then two weeks off. Now, uh, they call this burst fasting. I did a video on it. I haven't released it, but it's kind of come up with a name of burst fasting where you're essentially doing that, where if you're going to fast every day, do it in like five-day stents, seven-day stents, even 10-day stents, and then take a couple of weeks off of fasting altogether. Got it. And go. I skipped over the second part of my question earlier about what breaks a fast. This is what people want to know. What can they get away with? They want to know, can I have the coffee? Can I have the... MCT oil in the coffee. What are these other things other than essential amino acids? We've settled that. But for these other supplements or drinks, what, what can people have during their fast without breaking the fast? Yeah. I mean, the list can be quite long if you really get kind of granular, but simply put black coffee. Sure. There's a couple of calories in it, but I think the polyphenols, the, uh, you know, CAMP sort of activation of it, that's all going to override that, in my opinion. I think the two or three calories from a cup of black coffee, the benefits you get from it far outweigh 
those couple of calories as far as autophagy is concerned and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Green tea, same kind of category, uh, very negligible amount of calories, not to mention the catechins can be beneficial for autophagy in and of themselves. So those kinds of things like black tea, green tea, uh, black coffee, anything you're not adding creamer to, I think it's totally fine. Uh, what about artificial sweeteners, things like that? Stevia, monk fruit seem to be fine. Granted, some people have cephalic insulin responses with stevia and monk fruit too, meaning they have an insulin response. And the way that you can watch that is if you ever test your glucose or use a continuous glucose monitor, if you were to have monk fruit or stevia and you actually see a sudden drop in your glucose, that's indicative of you having a spike in insulin that did not go alongside having glucose. So your glucose drops. Uh, some people say that, oh, this is great. I had you know monk fruit, my glucose dropped. Well, if you didn't have any food with it, that's actually not necessarily a good thing. That means you're someone that's actually sensitive to monk fruit from a cephalic mm-hmm. side. Now, same thing applies to sucralose, to aspartame, you name it. I'm careful to not pick one side or the other on the whole artificial sweetener discussion because it's a, a hot pot for, for debate because the research, although scary and enough to make me not consume it, it's heavily rodent model based and it's, it's difficult to say, hey, you should not absolutely have aspartame. I think the stuff is personally, I mean, it's, it's a toxin, like it shouldn't be consumed in my opinion, but as far as an insulin response goes, aspartame doesn't really trigger an insulin response. So it's one of those things where, well, if you're absolutely positively addicted to diet soda, you could probably get away with it, but should you, I mean, if you're benefit, if you're getting all these benefits to fasting, do you really want to take that risk? Sucralose the only human model stuff is showing that about 50% of the population gets a cephalic insulin response. What's interesting is that that 50% changes over day to day. So in other words, Dr. Cole, you could have sucralose today, Splenda, and have no insulin spike. And I could. And then tomorrow, I might not, and you may. So it's very, very dependent on circumstances that we just don't know, probably to do with our gut flora our you know ability to uh you know postbiotic effect of consuming something and how it impacts our just gut biome and our pancreas so it's one of those things where like with all these other different alternatives out there right now is it really like the juice really worth the squeeze mm-hmm. and at the end of the day like maybe you're better just having just a little bit of lemon with some water or some water with some lemon in it lemon couple calories but i think the glucose modulation effect i think all these things like that you're offsetting in a fraction of a second, as far as calories are concerned, it's probably fine. Other than that, anything that's a soft gel, like a soft gel capsule, like a fish oil capsule, mm-hmm. vitamin D capsules, things like that. I would not take those during your fast. Those are oil. Those will break it fast. Any water soluble vitamins are probably fine. Vitamin C, things like that. You may not want to take vitamin C. I don't always recommend taking antioxidants during a fast mm-hmm. because you're offsetting the endogenous antioxidant effects of a fast. So you have to ask yourself, like, do you really want to make fasting super complicated or do you want to just keep it simple and just enjoy water, coffee, tea, and then almost anything would be fine during the eating period. So you can give yourself a heck of a lot more flexibility if you just keep Mm -hmm. it clean during your fast, you know, instead of concerning yourself with, is this going to break it? Is this not? Mm -hmm. A, the stress is not worth it, but B, (laughs) I can't give you a positive answer if it's going to quote unquote break a fast or not because everybody responds so different. Ah, oh, so well said. Something that I take every single day without fail. I especially do it when I have a heavier workout or I'm using my infrared sauna, but even when I'm not, even when I'm just consulting patients, 
I'm sipping on some element. All my telehealth patients that listen to the podcast will tell you that Dr. Will Cole recommends element because I typically put it into their protocols for specific reasons. Element is this tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, but none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients. I mean, you all should read the labels. If you haven't read the labels of electrolyte drinks on the market, it is no bueno. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited no matter what type of way that you eat, like keto, keto, low carb, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, it doesn't matter. This is just for everybody supporting their electrolyte needs. Electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. It actually tells water where to go. So it's really important from a cellular hydration standpoint. Element can help prevent and eliminate headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness. These are all common symptoms of electrolyte deficiencies and imbalances. I'm telling you, when I look at labs or when I see some potential pitfalls with telehealth patients, like early, like new, new patients, one of the most obvious low-hanging fruits to optimize is electrolyte balance. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets completely free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all their eight flavors. I mean, I... I have so many flavors that I love. I love the orange. I love the citrus one. I love the, the raspberry one. I like their sweet and spicy ones too. Uh, so many options, so many options. But you can try all eight flavors or you can share Element with a salty friend because, you know, we all have one of those. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash Will Cole. This deal is only available through this link. So you have to go to drinklmnt.com slash Will Cole drinkelement.com slash willcole. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
I want to go back to something you said in passing, but I think it's a really interesting probably point to make because I've not heard anyone talk about this, is antioxidants during a fast. So what is the reason why, mechanistically, why someone could should consider maybe not having antioxidants like vitamin C during their fast? Yeah, because the idea behind fasting is you are upregulating endogenous, your body's own antioxidant defense mm-hmm. because of the stress. Remember, fasting is a stressor. And you want fasting to remain a stressor. And that stressor is actually going to drive up ROS. It's going to drive up reactive oxygen species or oxidative mm. stress, which sounds bad, which in a lot of ways it, it is, but you're doing it in such a controlled setting that you're allowing the body to adapt. Much like when you go to the gym, you're triggering stress and oxidative damage, but you're doing it in a controlled setting that's not so over the top that your body can't get around it. Um, it's just like if you were to go to the gym and constantly just beat yourself into the ground. Although mentally you might feel like you're accomplishing something, mm-hmm. it takes a lot to recover from that. And if you don't have the right nutrition, the right recovery, in the case of many athletes, the right drugs, I mean, it's just like it's impossible to recover properly. The same thing happens with a fast. So what you don't want to do is enable the body by just giving it an antioxidant. So mm-hmm. it says, oh, cool. Well, thanks, dude. I don't need to produce this now. I don't need to upregulate superoxide dismutase. I don't need to upregulate glutathione. I don't need to deal with all of this myself because you're just mm-hmm. going to pop a vitamin C. You're basically negating the antioxidant benefit of the fast. Yeah. And the research is very clear on antioxidants intra-workout or post-workout in the exact same avenue. So mm-hmm. like it's not advised to take echinacea or uh, any kind of like vitamin C or any kind of hydroxytyrosol is the one they've looked at specifically, but you shouldn't take that post-workout because it actually blunts the inflammatory response that allows you to recover and get stronger in the first place. Got it. So you're talking, when you say antioxidant pathways, is it mainly the AMPK pathways, NRF2 pathways yes. that you're trying to yeah. support during exactly. that time? Exactly. So I'm all about taking in those antioxidants in a very liberal amount during your eating period, but during the fasting period, you should let your body do the work, which dovetails into a a thing that people think about, but don't always ask is, okay, what about if I'm getting sick? Like, should I fast? And that's the exact reason why I I think the responsible answer is if you know you're getting sick, you probably shouldn't fast. Mm. You know, you should feed your body because on the other side of this, this coin is that you are stressing your body with a fast although you're trying to increase the antioxidant profiles naturally, that actual subsequent increase isn't going to happen until after the fast is done. Mm-hmm. In the interim, you're breaking yourself down. So that's mm-hmm. like saying, hey, like I feel like I'm getting the flu. Is it okay for me to jump into cold plunge? No, it's probably not a good idea. Or, mm-hmm. hey, I'm getting a cold. Should I go kick my ass in the gym? No, probably not. Same kind of response. Mm-hmm. I love that. Super... I- Amazing tips. Something came to mind here about what many people are doing in the biohacking, quote unquote, biohacking space or the wellness space. It's trending is the cold plunges. What are your thoughts on people that are cold plunging after a workout? I mean, that to me, mechanistically may not seem the most advantageous time to do it. What do you think? Yeah, I know Dr. Andy Galpin just posted something about this, where basically some newer research shows that Like it doesn't hurt or help, but I think that's in a very different kind of setting. So the way that I look at it, the general population, not athletes, just people that are recreational crossfitters or go to the gym and lift now and then not even gym rats, just people that are just trying to stay healthy. 
I think they are quelling. This is my personal opinion. I think they're quelling the inflammatory response that is required for them to recover. If I can go on record for myself, anecdotally, I will say, literally, the five times that I have jumped in the cold plunge when I have been, granted, it's a triple threat effect, fasted, hard workout, cold plunge, every time I've gotten sick. Mm. And I've cold plunged hundreds of times. And those are the times that I've gotten sick after a cold plunge. Does it mean anything? No, because it's just my anecdotal experience. But it also backs up my theories. Is it confirmation bias? <laughs> Maybe I willed myself into getting sick by thinking that. Bottom line is I'm not the only one that's experienced that. I train very, very, very hard. And if I train very hard and jump in a cold plunge, it's just too much for my body. It's too much oxidative stress. It's quelling the inflammatory response that would actually help me recover in the first place. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you shouldn't do it? Not necessarily. I got to be careful saying that. Like, what, what doesn't work for me may work fine for you. But I think there's a certain subset of people that get a very strong benefit from cold plunging, not necessarily after their workout, but as a recovery modality. There's a reason that in the NFL, they use it, but they also use contrast treatments where they're hot, cold, hot, cold with hot, cold baths, not just cold plunge and a sauna. They're doing hot, cold contrast for hours and they're doing it as a recovery modality, typically in lieu of a workout. So uh, I remember when I was doing uh, some training for some stuff with the NFL, and I remember that specifically, it was like Mondays after game day would be like their recovery days where they would do the contrast treatments for inflammation modulation, not because the competition day for an athlete is where they're pushing it hard and they can take all the stops that they need to take to make that workout easier, to make that game easier, which means if they need to take antioxidants or whatever during or anti-inflammatories during the game, so be it. They're not trying to get an adaptation from the game. They're trying to win. They're trying to get an adaptation from the training that is not the game. So it's so important to note that they beat the crap out of their bodies on game day, and they're not trying to adapt from that. They're just trying to win the next day. It's all about recovery and mm -hmm. the workout might be something light, but definitely nothing crazy. Mm -hmm. So with cold plunges, I have mixed feelings, to be honest with you, because I like it. I think it's tremendous for the brain as far as like nothing is going to just shock me into oblivion to get my day started better than a cold plunge. Does that mean that it's something we should be doing every day? I, I honestly don't know. I, I'm much more of a fan of a sauna every day. Because I think a sauna can be modulated to be a little bit cooler, a little bit hotter. Uh, it's an exercise mimetic versus just a giant shot of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I'm in, I'm in team sauna over here, so maybe I'm biased. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in team sauna too. I love my my sunlight. But then you mentioned sort of the the contrast or people cycling between cold and hot. Do you ever do that? And if so. Where do you, which one do you start and end on, if any? So this is interesting. And I, um, I don't know if you saw on Instagram, this ended up in a, like a long debate, not with me, but you know, everyone else likes to debate. I was up in Tahoe and it was like 12 degrees out and my cold plunge was down to like, I don't know, the top had like three inches of ice on it. So however cold that is, ambient temperature, 12 degrees. I jumped in that cold plunge for I think five or six minutes and then went in the sauna and people lost their minds. They're like, that's not what you're supposed to do. You did it backwards. Like you're negating all the effects of the cold plunge. I was like, first off, what effects? <laughs> Second of all, like 
I did it because it feels good. And because for me, that's what I wanted. I'm not always trying to squeeze every little ounce of performance. Sometimes I just want to do stuff that feels good. I'm also about five, 6% body fat. And I was freezing to the bone and I wanted to thaw out. Uh, so <laughs> that's just the way that it works. So some will say that if you get out of a cold plunge and you go into a sauna, that you negate the beijing of white fat to brown fat, because you should get out of that cold plunge and let yourself be cold and let yourself warm up. There is some evidence to back that up because the cold plunge itself does not brown fat. It does not turn fat into brown adipose tissue. It's too cold. Uh, the research behind the beijing of white fat or converting white fat into metabolically active brown fat is all surrounding like 55 to 60 degree longer term exposure. So like going out and being, you know, go for a run naked when it's 55 degrees out or something like that's the kind of thing that, you know, don't literally do that, please. Full disclaimer. <laughs> uh, at least wear underwear. Yeah. But with that, that's the idea is it's this longer term exposure. There's even some data. I can't remember the study that was like putting people in like a 64, 65 degree room compared to a 74 degree room for five hours a day when they were at work. And the amount of brown fat, the 60, 65 degree room gained versus the other. And when I say gained, I mean like turned white fat into brown fat, making it more metabolically active. So a cold plunge itself does not do that. So when you get out of a cold plunge and you have this period of time where you're warming up, that could arguably, there could be a sliver of time there where you're getting some brown fat benefit. So arguably, if you get in a sauna, you negate that or you shrink that window. It's splitting hairs, if you ask me. And mm -hmm. if it prevents you from going hyperthermic or hypothermic, then uh, I think it's worth it. <laughs> now, on the other yeah. side of the equation, I live in Tahoe most of the time. So in Tahoe, it gets very cold. And there's on average seven people that die every year by jumping into Lake Tahoe from cold shock, by going from contrast to contrast. If I go in my sauna that I kind of jerry-rigged, don't tell anyone, to get up to like 240 degrees because I want it to be really hot in my dry sauna. If I go from 240 degrees to 30 degrees, I do seriously run a risk of cold shock. That is a lot. Mm -hmm. So the long-winded, almost like baited answer because there's, <laughs> there's, there's some angst behind that because so many people gave me hell for doing it what was supposedly backwards. Yeah. But I just didn't, I didn't feel like having a stroke that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean... What what's wrong with you? The militant biohackers <laughs> just like they're gonna get you, man. Uh, <laughs> so you, earlier you talked about rodent models in the studies, and we we have ask me anything episodes with me and my telehealth team, and we cite some studies. Oftentimes there will be rodent models or mice models, and people ask us why are why are studies done on mice, and can they be translated? How much can they be translated to humans? I know that's an odd question to ask you, but I'm, I know you're such a purveyor of the research and I'd love for, to get your answer on that. Yeah. I mean, the simplest way to answer is for everyone that's watching and listening right now, I would like to ask you to volunteer two years of your life to go into a metabolic ward. Uh, we're going to poke you, prod you, probably electrocute you, make you run on a treadmill until you pass out. Uh, then we're going to force you to eat a certain amount and then we're going to starve you a certain amount. So, and we're going to do it for free. So any takers? <laughs> that is why things are done yeah. on rodent models. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, that seems insanely unethical. And, and although it might be seemingly unethical, sometimes you have to do that stuff to understand how the human body works. So it's frustrating, but unless you're willing to volunteer as a human model to do that, 
that's where it goes. Now, rodent models, it's also cheaper to run the studies. It's realistic. So with that, you have to kind of understand there's a lot of moving pieces here and research moves slow. And we don't trust rodent models like we trust human data, but we look at rodent models to say, hey, this is worthy of investing in humans. Mm -hmm. So if you have overarching, like positive research in rodent models, you're like, well, I'm glad we started here because now we know this is worth doing in humans versus spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to just get like a nil response from humans. So you can spend tens of thousands of dollars and do it with rodents and be like, okay, like mm -hmm. you can also selectively knock out receptors. You can select selectively knock out genes, which means you can turn off genes. You can do things in rodents that you can't legally, ethically, morally do in humans. Again, you can make the argument, full disclaimer, that it's not legal, moral, or ethical to do in rodents either, but it's definitely less legal to do it in humans. So with that, that's why we start there. Now, in the biohacking world, sometimes that's taken too far. In the sort of middle ground world that I think you know you and I live in, Doc, it's like we're all about what can we get excited about that we can get people excited about that's not going to hurt them to try that we've seen positive results with in rodent models. Lots of amazing, interesting things we've seen with fasting in rodent models that just haven't been done in humans yet, but it's certainly not hurting someone to say, hey, try breaking your fast at 2 p.m. instead of 4 p.m. or try breaking your fast at 11 a.m. instead of 6 p.m. because it worked really well in this rodent model. The human has nothing to lose by trying it, only mm -hmm. something to gain. So it's just like we get excited about that stuff because it's okay to get excited about it. It's just, you just don't want to take it as gospel truth. Mm -hmm. No, I love that answer. You all can know if there is a sponsor on this podcast, it's because I use it or I recommend it to telehealth patients or my team loves it or all three of those. This one right here is definitely in all three of those. I've taken it for years. I recommend it to patients. It's called AG1. I have AG1 every morning when I get to the telehealth center. One of the first things that I do is I have my AG1. And if I somehow missed it in the morning, I will sip on it at some point in between consulting patients online. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for your brain health, your gut health, and your immune system support. So important here. Since 2010, they've improved their formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible. That's the key term here, everybody. It's foundational nutrition support through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. With just one scoop of AG1, you can get the nutrients and gut health support that helps your whole body thrive and cover your nutritional bases. I see nutrient deficiencies all the time on labs for patients, and you can really, really fill in the gaps with just one scoop of AG1. Think of it as a multivitamin, a multimineral, a greens superfood blend, a probiotic blend, an adaptogen blend, and a functional mushroom blend all in one. They really have thoughtfully curated the formula here. I'm so, I just love it so much. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one year supply of, of vitamin D3, K2. It's a vitamin D and K2 blend. And you get a year supply of that. And also five free AG1 travel packs, which I love. I put it in my carry-on every time I'm traveling. 
so you never miss a day. You get both of those with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Will Cole. That's drinkag and then the number one, D-R-I-N-K-A-G, the number one.com slash Will Cole. Drinkag1.com slash Will Cole. Check it out. And go back to saunas real, real quickly. Do you have a preference of infrared? I know people have the barrel saunas, like the t- conventional saunas, t- the traditional saunas. Do you have one that you prefer over an, the other? And if so, why? Yeah, they both have different use cases. Uh, I'm a big fan of dry saunas because I like to get them really hot. I'm in it for the heat shock protein effect that comes from a, a very high heat but also the glymphatic system effects on the brain that come from a very high heat. And that's basically to help me sleep. Uh, it's You get this intracranial pressure that happens when you are in a sauna and the intracranial pressure allows for cerebral spinal fluid to basically flush through the brain better and clear out metabolic waste out of the brain. And that can really only happen when you generate that pressure with a rather high heat. With an infrared sauna, you arguably get more of a sweat and you get different sort of cellular effects that you might not get otherwise. So I, it scares people when you say like an infrared is more like kind of a, how a microwave cooks you from the inside out and a dry sauna is more like going into an oven. Neither sound fun to do as a real human and no, like infrared saunas are not EMF. They're not microwaves. They're not literal microwaves. It's just an analogy to say like how it gets you from the inside out versus the outside in. Got it. So I you you intimated this and it's definitely true that you and I have always there's so much synchronicity between your work and my work because we are like middle ground people who look at both sides and try to be not dogmatic and evolve and pivot. And we don't see that as a failure, but just like the more you, like Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. And science is always evolving in these areas. I'm curious to know your answer here is how has your perspective on nutrition, how has it changed in the past 10 years? Like what's the biggest difference of you today versus 10 years ago? The biggest difference to me today is that I'm no longer scared to death of insulin. Uh, you know, that was a big thing for me as someone that was overweight, lost a lot of weight with keto and intermittent fasting. It was easy for me to, in having just the right amount of biochemistry knowledge to be dangerous, but not enough to fully like be well vetted on both sides. So I went years thinking insulin was the sole enemy and thinking that carbs were a sole enemy when in reality, they're not an enemy. They, they're a tool, you know, and same with insulin. Insulin is probably the most, probably the most important peptide hormone in the body. And it's very critical for just about everything. So mm-hmm. of course, like we didn't want to, like you, if you had asked me 10 years ago before I was much more flush in the research. And I was back just kind of in my biotech days when I was doing what I used to do, working with physicians all the time. But it was like I was in biotech and biomed sales. If you had asked me with that superficial knowledge, I would have thought that like insulin is seriously the problem. So now I understand that, okay, periodic spikes in insulin strategically done right, whether it's through protein, proper carbohydrate utilization, that can be hugely advantageous. I've improved my blood markers by occasionally adding carbohydrates in when I should. I've improved my lipid profile, which was good to begin with. I've improved my workout performance. I've improved my sex drive. I mean, across all things, it's easier to maintain body composition for me too. It's so insulin is very powerful for fat gain, but it can also be powerful for fat loss if you know how to time it right. That is a conversation that would take hours to explain. So I don't want people to see this and be like, oh, well, tell me how to you how to how to time insulin properly. 
that is a very long explanation, but the point is that's the biggest thing that I've kind of changed on. Got it. So how, I mean, just, we don't have to get super deep on this right now, but do you, when you're timing insulin or getting the grams of carbohydrates coming from whole foods, and obviously you know that I advocate the same thing as sort of a cyclical approach around carbs, depending on your biochemistry and where you're at today, right? What, and what serves you today, is it necessarily what you're going to need forever and ever, but where, like how much carbs do you think the average person should be increasing to maintain that metabolic flexibility? I think, you know, generally speaking, if people are having, because there's that low carb gray area you can end up in, right? If someone's mm -hmm. doing a ketogenic diet and their carbs are very low and they're producing ketones, then, you know, that's one thing. But then if they're consuming 200 grams of carbs and they have no need to produce ketones, their body is utilizing those carbs just fine, mm -hmm. then that's a completely different situation. But if they're kind of sitting in that low carb gray area yeah. where they're not quite getting the benefits of ketosis and they're not quite getting the benefits of having higher amounts of carbs, well, then they feel sluggish and then they feel awful. And that's where a lot of people end up that try keto. They don't get their carbs low enough and they're like, oh, this work, this doesn't work. I feel terrible. It's like, no, yeah. you never gave it a chance. So I caution people to not end up there. So what I typically do is, you know, I do periodic bouts of where I go keto for four, six weeks, and then I'll go for six weeks with more of a Mediterranean style. So lots of sweet potatoes, mm -hmm. lots of, you know, starchy vegetables, like, you know, squash, butternut squash, things like that. Not big on the grains, things like that. And for me at my weight, I'll probably have maybe 120 grams of carbs per day on those days with very little coming from sugar and the sugar is coming from fruit if it is. Got it. I call that place the metabolic purgatory. It's like you're, yes. you're not you're, like you're not getting the kindling on the fire of carbs and you're not having the log of on the fire from ketones. So speaking of low carb, what's your thought on the carnivore diet? Everybody wants to know, is it good? Is it bad? What's what what say you? I think it works for quite a few people because it puts them in that box that they need to be in. Uh, do I think there's any magic that comes from an additive side of things with the carnivore diet? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's all elimination. I think mm -hmm. it's the fact that they're eliminating more and more potential things that are flaring them up. Yeah. So the people that typically have so much success with carnivore are typically the people that are possibly suffering from autoimmune issues, or they have consumption issues where they just, whether they're aware of it or not, they consume things that they shouldn't be consuming and they have too much consumed, too much processed stuff if left to their, left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people made the move from keto to carnivore. And I noticed that move from keto to carnivore happened when there were a lot more hyper palatable keto options available mm -hmm. because people were doing keto, having success with it. And then suddenly they have options like keto crackers and keto cookies and keto snacks and this and that. Next thing you know, they're in the same spot they were five years ago. They're just in a keto window doing it because mm -hmm. they haven't looked at the fact that maybe being in ketosis doesn't give you a license to eat whatever you want within that ketogenic sphere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it does give you huge benefits metabolically, but you can still eat total garbage and be in ketosis. Now, there's some people that were like, no, I was doing keto very clean, you know, but the vegetables were flaring me up. That's always a possibility. Like it's always a possibility. People will have issues with nightshades. People will have issues with cruciferous. Like I'm not saying that doesn't exist. That absolutely. But when you look at the small, small cohort of people, which seems large these days because it's like everyone's doing carnivore. No, like a fraction of a percent of people are doing carnivore. They're just loud and it sounds loud. Those people might be the small minority 
that are sticking with it because it's like, Hey, this is the one thing that worked for me. Like, yeah. And maybe they have to eliminate so much to get themselves there. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that we're adding magic by adding saturated fat. I don't think we're adding magic by adding copious re- amounts of red meat. I think it's more, Hey, well, what are you eating red meat instead of? Yeah. Well said. And that, that's exactly what we do clinically with patients, the people that are, we have on it temporarily, but a well-formulated, clean carnivore diet for time. And they're the people that have these hyper reactions to lots of different things, these seeming otherwise very healthy whole foods, but it's, and it's not those foods fault. It's really the immune systems overreaction to them. So every one of our patients over time, we work on reintroduction that, that, that is on a carnivore protocol for a time. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. But ultimately, I think for the people that are seeing the benefits of the carnivore diet, my mind goes to what's contributing to the overreaction. You know, for example, we see people that have unresolved trauma. Their their immune system's in such a hypervigilant state because of trauma they have from their childhood or because of mold toxicity. It's causing all these food sensitivities or other, other biotoxin problem where when you deal with the, the upstream issue, then all these food reactions tend to go away. Not that you can't use the carnivore. It should be both and. I think the carnivore is, like you said, an ultimate elimination. So it's a way to sort of reintroduce things over time. Dude, you nailed it. I know my wife is comfortable with me talking about some of her situation, but you know, we were spending some time up in up in Carmel, up in Monterey County, which in California is a very beautiful place, but a very foggy, foggy place with lots of mold. And all the homes there deal with mold issues. It's just socked in with fog all the time. Not to mention the ambient air has higher mold counts just in the ambient air than like some people in dry climates, like worse mold situations. So in Man, people will even say, like, if you look back at videos that I filmed there, it's funny. They'll be like, Thomas, you have dark circles in your eyes. Thomas, I was always puffy, always inflamed from just being in mold all the time. Mm-hmm. And my wife, who went, you know, years with Hashimoto, she was diagnosed with EBV and Lyme, you know, years ago. She's always had these issues where she's very sensitive and has these crazy flare-ups. Keto saved her life, literally. You know, she was like going down a very bad path. In that house, it started to bring everything back. And not like everything was exactly where it should be to have a perfect life. Otherwise, you know, happy kids, life was good, but we're in this house that had mold in it. And it was like, I was feeling issues and I'm, I've never had like serious metabolic issues other than being overweight and diabetic at one point. But like my wife has these issues and it came back. So we're finally like, okay, you know what? Let's get up to Tahoe where the air is super dry and there's very little mold, you know, within a month. It was like my, the bloat in my face, the puff circles under my eyes went away. Like it's just wild. Her symptoms all went down. And then now we're spending time like more like Ventura County, like North of LA, kind of close to Santa Barbara, you know, drier, but still just not socked in with fog dealt with that issue first. And that was 90% of the thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like what you say, it's like, yeah, it's all, everything else is just like this cascade of things. And a lot of times these symptoms we face are just canaries in the coal mine for Mm -hmm. much bigger things that we can address with. Unfortunately, sometimes it's moving, Mm -hmm. you know, and that can suck, but yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well said. And something that you and I have talked about before with keto, but also now I think with the carnivore diet and any other type super tribal way, I think veganism is the same way and vegetarianism is that they can for many people become a source of orthorexia, right? And can you talk about that a little bit, sort of this disordered eating around healthy foods and that sort of inflexible 
obsessive, shame-based way of doing these maybe good things, uh, it's sabotaging any benefits they may have. Yeah. I mean, the shame piece is, is huge. I spent, you know, years living in that world after my weight loss, thinking that like, oh, well, you know, people are only going to love me if I look a certain way. And uh, it was harder to maintain it that way. Right. So, you know, I kind of joked and I used to call it the shame-based diet as a joke to be like, like, Hey, it works, but it's going to put a heck of a lot of stress in your mind. It's not going to work long-term. And I think that's the problem that we face if we become too obsessive about anything. When something changes your life in the short term, it's hard to not shout from the rooftops and it's hard to not like, it's hard to not let go of the reins a little bit. You know, if you, if you feel like you had this insane benefit because keto changed your life and saved you from what could have been terrible demise, it would, it, yeah, you'd almost, you'd have to almost be not human to like mm -hmm. relinquish a little bit of that control. I'd be like, no, no, no. This is the one thing that saved me. So next thing you know, you're obsessive. And next thing you know, you're so obsessive is you're, you're becoming more and more narrow with what you eat. And then you start wrapping up your self-worth and your validation in what you eat because, oh man, if I ever feel like that again, I'm going to be worthless. My husband's going to leave me and my kids are going to hate me and I'm going to be a terrible mom. And I'm going to, and all of a sudden it becomes your identity. Mm -hmm. And then it's like the moment when that happens, then you have a cookie, you know, and you enjoy yourself and you go to a Christmas party and your entire validation, your entire self-worth is crushed and you're depressed. And you think it's the cookie that made you depressed. Maybe the sugar had an influence. It certainly can, but it's probably a negligible part compared to the fact that your entire mm -hmm. identity was wrapped up in not eating that cookie. Yeah. It's like being a murderer and then being on parole and committing murder again, you're like, oh my gosh, I did it again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's dangerous and it's a slippery slope. And yeah. I've always said it's harder to have control with real food and flexible flexibility to your life. It's much harder to have control and eat those foods than it is to put yourself in a box. Mm -hmm. Like it's easier. I'll speak for myself. It's easier for me to be obsessed and totally just particular about every single thing that goes in my body. It's easier for me to do that. But is it better? No, mm -hmm. it's actually harder for me to consciously let myself live my life a little bit. It might mean that I have some mental hurdles with it, but if I teach myself that, Hey, mm -hmm. I had this and I still survived and I'm doing the work and I'm actually, I'm training consistently. I'm not going through spurts where I'm working out really hard to offset a cookie that I ate. I'm just consistently training well and consistently eating well. And you know what? Everything does fall into place. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is, that's going to speak life, I think. And grace and to so many people right now hearing you say that shame is worse than any cookie uh, that I can think of. Uh, my friend, you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, we have your art of being well. This is Thomas DeLauer's Art of Being Well. First question is, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat it, but it tastes disgusting, but you know there's some amazing health benefits and science behind it? Oh, dude, easy answer. Straight cod liver oil. <laughs> so how, straight cod liver oil, what form yeah. are you getting it? Are you squeezing a cod liver out or no? You're getting it in some glass bottle, I'm sure. I get it in the glass bottle. This is not, again, it's not a plug. I, I use Jigsaw Health, which they have a really good one. They have it in capsule form too, but a lot of times where I just don't want the gelatin capsule, I just want the straight food. And it's, yeah, I mean, one of the most potent natural sources of vitamin D, one of the most potent natural, probably the most potent source of vitamin A, a outside of, yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and not a bad source of DHA, omega-3s too, EPA and DHA, all in like, you know, with what are, what are called pro-resolving -resol mediators. So it's just such a like, 
in my opinion, I don't even take a fish oil pill. I just take cod liver oil. And yes, I can take it in a capsule, but if I take it in the oil, I just feel like it's cleaner. I'm just assimilating it exactly when I want it. It tastes like cod liver and it's terrible, <laughs> but it's great. So take it in a capsule if you don't want to have it taste better. I love it. What's your dream vacation? Like anything in the world, what's the most idyllic vacation? Uh, Patagonia for me, definitely. I've done the tropical thing. I dig it. I love the big island. We go there a few times a year, but uh, that's become like a peaceful place for me. I think dream vacation for me would be yeah, either somewhere out in the like mountains of Argentina or you know Patagonia, just out in a nice ranch in the middle of summer, just living off the land, climbing Coca V, just, you know, yeah, being out there. It. I love it. Do you have a spiritual or a mindfulness practice that's been the biggest game changer for you there? You know, I mean, my simple mindfulness practice, I have a very strict meditation regime. And I say strict, which is like the opposite of what I should be saying for meditation. It's not like this strict discipline, like that's kind of defeats the purpose in some ways. I try to practice just being present and meditating in the moment, but I do enjoy going into my sauna at a high heat and meditating through a slight level of pain. It does something to me. I can't speak to the science of meditating in a sauna, but it's difficult and every fiber of my being wants to get out of that sauna. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's the increase in cerebral blood flow where my mind is just racing because adrenaline's pumping because it's hot in that sauna. But to be able to just like collate my thoughts at warp speed, you know, they say with meditation at a very simple level, you're like, oh, the the, the river is flowing and you kind of like, you know, what, you know, you know, that whole thing, like, oh, you watch the, you watch your thoughts mm -hmm. float down the river or whatever. And you know, there's a thought, there's a thought. Uh, when you're in the sauna and it's like your adrenaline's pumping, it's like raging white water of thoughts. It's like, there's a thought, there's a thought, there's a thought, there's a thought. And to be able to deal with it mm. and let go super fast, it's it's like I've consolidated two hours of meditation into 10 minutes. It just, yeah. at least that's how it feels. Wow. Very cool. I'll have to try that sometime. What's the, if you had to say out of all the things you've done, what's the weirdest wellness thing that you've done that you're willing to admit on a podcast? Oh yeah. I, I won't do it again. Cause it's weird, but I, uh, probably doing, putting BFR cuffs on and do, doing pushups and like a workout in the sauna. Uh, so like putting BFR cuffs on, which have huge benefits as far as like lactate is concerned and stuff like that. But yeah. I don't know if you should be doing them in a sauna. Yes. I was like, okay, lact <laughs> lactate can help flush it. Maybe it's going to get more to the brain. And like, it did nothing, but make me feel like a weirdo. And it burnt my arms because the cuffs got like super hot. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and for people that are at BFR is blood flow restriction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. That sounds miserable. I would <laughs> never want to do that. What's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when you're there, what do you order there? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay. So there's a place on Maui that's not even really, it's it's like a, not even really, it's, it is a restaurant, but it's like a, you know, just order a head place. Uh, it's called Fork and Salad. And I know it sounds like, oh man, this is picking some, it, it's a small chain. I think there's three on Maui. Uh, my favorite thing to order there is they have this, well, they have amazing ahi belly that is just baked ahi belly that is so flipping good. Okay. And then they have this broccoli that they marinate for like four days in kimchi and then they bake it. So it's kimchi broccoli. So I get like ahi belly with some asparagus, some kimchi broccoli, uh, the ubi, the purple sweet potato stuff, just a few other, like, you know, maybe a little bit of papaya on it. Like it is so good. And I know it sounds like, oh, that's something you could really kind of make at home. No, I've tried. <laughs> like, it just <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work. It sounds amazing. Have you ever been to mama's fish house in Maui? It's so- Oh yeah. That place, that place is definitely one of my favorites in Maui. So good. Yeah. But I have to check out the place you just told me. Yeah, my friend, where can people go to get your book, 
tell us about the book. Tell us about all the things you have going on in the world. Yeah. Well, cool thing about the book, your quote is on the cover of it. I know. Uh, I <laughs> I was, that's a highlight of my career, seeing my name on the front of your book. I just, it meant a lot that you asked me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, no, you're someone that I respect as one of the very few non-dogmatic people in here. And I wanted that, I wanted people to look at that book and say, oh, this isn't like, you know, it's easy with keto and fasting to end up in a group of what people would consider quacks because they're one-sided. And I'm like, no, like I don't have that reputation. You don't have that reputation. I want people to see that and recognize two names that are like just good, solid uh, information. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, just get that on Amazon. It's called Intermittent Fasting Made Easy. Full disclaimer, it's not really made easy. It's a very dense book, <laughs> but it is made easy when you actually read it and understand that it. it's designed to be a resource, not a cover to cover type book. It's like your encyclopedia for fasting. Uh, so it's like you have a question about when to break it. Well, let me turn to this page, that kind of thing. Otherwise, uh, it's more like, where can you avoid me on social media? Because <laughs> <laughs> no, but YouTube's the big one. Uh, that's, that's where I put my long form content, my interviews, things like that. Instagram's just Thomas DeLauer. I've been doing more of the short form stuff, but long form's where my heart's at. Got it. Are you on TikTok, Thomas DeLauer? I am by default, but I don't spend much time there. I just <laughs> repurpose a little bit of what I do on Instagram. So yeah, you can find me there, but it don't expect a lot. <laughs> my friend, I appreciate you. It's great. Great catching up. Likewise, man. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.